0: Alright, so usually about once a quarter, our elder team gathers together on Saturday mornings uh, just to look at some of the big picture issues related to our church. Uh, We also have weekly meetings, and during those weekly meetings, we're asking questions that are typically dealing with day-to-day operations of the church, questions like, when should we have the next membership class, or how do we feel like the last uh, worship service went last Sunday, or what do we need to do to prepare for this coming Sunday, or how can we support one of our missionaries in Africa, or what items can we be praying for our church this week? Other questions along those lines. And those things are all needed and important. But occasionally we know that as an elder team, we need to take a step back and ask the questions about the big picture, try to get a big view of the church and where we're headed. And so on those Saturday morning meetings, we usually like to ask questions like, where do we want to be as a church two or three years from now? Or what are some things in a church that we need to implement? Or what are some weaknesses that we have? Or how can we create a culture of discipleship or prayer or evangelism? And so one of the things that came up recently in one of our Saturday morning sessions is we realize that we think we as an elder team need to make sure that we implement deacons at this church. In the New Testament, there are two offices in the church, elder and deacon. The fact of the matter is that we do not have deacons here at New Hope Fellowship. Now, there's a long history as to why that's the case. If you've been in our membership class, you know why we don't have deacons. But we realized if there's two offices in the church, elder and deacon, and we don't have one, that's pretty significant. And so we started thinking, well, maybe it'd be helpful if I were to preach a series on deacons, or to at least preach a message on deacons. But the more we thought about it, we thought, well, maybe it'd be helpful to actually take a step back. We have a little four-week span here between now and Easter, and really just to look not just at the office of deacon or the office of elder, but to look at the church in general and to ask big-picture questions about the church. And so that's what our plan is. For the next four weeks, we're going to look, take a step back, and ask questions about the church In a few weeks here, we'll talk specifically about how deacons fits into that, but we want to take a broad look at what the church is about. Now, if you've been here for a while, you know that this is not our normal pattern of preaching. Uh, Typically, on a week-to-week basis, my goal is to preach through a book verse by verse, and I think that's important that we do that. That way, you don't just get my opinions on topics, but rather, we're forced to deal with what the Word says. So understand that this is not a departure from that philosophy. In fact, after Easter, the Sunday after Easter, we're going to start a series on the book of First Peter. But occasionally, it is helpful for us to take a step back and look at a topical uh, series or do a series on a particular topic, in this case, the church. And so today, my goal is one thing. I want to ask one question. What is the mission of the church? So let me pray, and then we'll dive into that question. Uh, Father, we do want to, as we think now over the next four weeks about the church, we want to think carefully and wisely. And so, Father, we are asking that you would help us today as we ask this one question, what is the mission of the church? Father, we know it's an important question because we know that we are not just to occupy space or to gather together because that's what we've always done, but we know that we are to be a church on mission. And so, Father, we're praying that today you would help us to think clearly about what our mission ought to be. What is it that we're trying to accomplish as a church? Father, would you be gracious to us during this time? Would your words speak to us as we turn to various different scriptures? And may we have a better understanding at the end of the day of what the mission of the church is. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I don't know why this is the case, but I've always been a little bit interested in mission statements of companies. Maybe it's because... I took a class in college where we looked at mission statements or maybe it's because I've been uh, working with various different companies when we've had orientation, we've talked about mission statements. But I've always been a little bit interested. When I worked for Starbucks, uh, we had an orientation and they talked about their mission statement and it's this. It's to inspire and nurture the human spirit. One person, one cup, and one neighborhood at a time. Now you could, uh, that's a pretty lofty mission statement, right? Uh, You could argue whether they actually do that or not. Uh, I think I have my answer to that question, but I I appreciate that they're trying to say something about their mission. There's certainly other mission statements out there that are interesting. Nike's mission statement, to bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. Walmart, we save people money so they can live better. Harley-Davidson, we fulfill dreams through the experience of motorcycling. By providing to motorcyclists and the general public an expanding line of motorcycles and branded products and services in selected market segments. That is a mouthful, right? Now, I think it's safe to say that our mission is not to fulfill dreams through motorcycling. I think it's also safe to say that as a church, our mission is not to nurture the human spirit through a cup of coffee. That is not what we are doing. But the question is, what are we trying to do? What is the mission of the church? Now, the difficulty with this question is that there are a lot of different ways to answer it. In fact, if you Google what is the mission of the church, there are an untold amount of answers to that question. Everyone has an opinion about the mission of the church. If I were to go and walk on the streets of Terrytown today and I were to ask people, what do you think the mission of the church is? I'm sure, first of all, people would look at me strangely, but secondly, they would give me lots of different answers. If you were walking in today, into the sanctuary, and I were to ask you, what is the mission of the church? I would guess that even amongst the people in this room, we would have a wide variety of responses. Because the fact is, there's not a Bible verse that tells us this is the mission of the church. Here it is. And so I'm going to give you what I think our mission should be. But the fact of the matter is, maybe you would add something to it, or maybe you would say it differently. I don't think there's necessarily one right answer to this question. But I think we have to start somewhere and say, well, what is our mission? And so today, even even if you feel like, well, I might say something differently, that's okay. Again, there's not a Bible verse that tells us exactly what the mission is. But I do think it's helpful for us to try to decide what do we think the mission is. And so this week, as I was researching that question, there was one answer that I found to be particularly satisfying. It's from Nine Marks Ministries. And they said this in response to the question, what is the mission of the local church? They said it's three-pronged. It's to proclaim the gospel, to preserve the gospel, and to display the gospel. To proclaim, preserve, and display. And so my hope for the rest of our time this morning, or this afternoon, I guess, is that we would just walk through that, and I would show you biblically why I think that's the case, and then I would try to challenge you to live those things out. So let's start with the first, that we must proclaim the gospel. Now if you were to pick one verse that you think might serve as a mission statement for the church, I would guess it might be the one that some of me read just a minute ago, Matthew 28. So let me read that passage here again in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. This is a passage commonly known as the Great Commission. Again, if you were to pick a mission verse, this might be it. Matthew 28 says this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." I think there's a couple of things worth pointing out about this passage. First of all, I think this is a command that hasn't ended yet. This is not a command just for the disciples who were living then. This is not just for the group of people that Jesus was addressing. This is clearly a command that has ongoing implications. And part of the reason we know that is because of the way it ends. Jesus reminds us, surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. This is an indication to us that he doesn't expect this command to become obsolete at some point. And so simply put, if you are a disciple of Christ, your role is to make disciples. Go make disciples. Regardless of what time period you live in, regardless of where you live, this is your role as a follower of Christ, to make disciples. Now, it's probably helpful to define what we mean by disciple. Based on Matthew 12, D.A. Carson defines a disciple in this way. Disciples are those who hear, understand, understand, And obey Jesus' teaching. They hear, understand, and obey Jesus' teaching. Well, only follows then, if that's what a disciple is, that if we want people to follow Jesus' teaching, we actually have to teach them about Jesus and about what Jesus has said. In fact, Jesus says as much at the end of verse 20 there. He says that we are to teach everything that he has commanded. We are to teach them all the things that he has taught. So we're not just to teach people stories from the Bible. We're not just to teach them rules from the Bible. We're to teach everything that Jesus has said. We are to point them to the truths of what Jesus communicated. So for example, in John 14, when Jesus says that he is the way and the truth and the life, this is something that we are to proclaim. We are to teach everything that he said. So I think it's safe to say that a mission of the church is that we would proclaim Christ. Now for the record, when I say proclaim Christ, I mean proclaim Christ. I mean that we actually speak his name to other people. This is a vital part of what it means to be a church, is that we would make disciples through the proclamation of Christ. Now, lest you think that I'm just cherry-picking a verse here, and that it's just Matthew 28, you need to know that this is all over the New Testament. In Colossians 1.28, this is our theme verse for the year. It says this, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. It's pretty simple, right? Colossians 1, him we proclaim. This is our job as the church to proclaim Christ. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, when Paul is speaking to Timothy as a leader of the church, he says, preach the word. Now, notice that he doesn't say in that passage, he doesn't say, preach what you want to preach or preach what people want to hear. He says, preach the word. In other words, as a church, we don't get to decide what we proclaim. We are to proclaim everything that Jesus has taught us. We are to preach the word. In 1 Peter 3.15, we're told to always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. In, in Matthew 9, Jesus says, The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out labors. Right, so the fact of the matter is that the New Testament is clear that this is a huge component of the church. This is our mission to proclaim Christ. In fact the only way you can get around that is if you just ignore a large proportion of New Testament verses. Now to be clear when we talk about the church we're not talking about a building and we're not just talking about the leadership or we're not just talking about what we do together on Sunday mornings. When we talk about the church proclaiming Christ what we're talking about are believers in Christ telling other people about Jesus. Now certainly we should do this when we gather together. When we're here on Sunday afternoons or mornings, depending on the time of year, it should always be our goal to proclaim Christ. When you leave here, if you've come on a Sunday morning, you should always feel like you heard about Jesus and what he did on the cross. So when we gather together, absolutely our mission is to proclaim Christ. But when we scatter, we should also proclaim Christ. Or maybe you've heard that before, that we gather and then we scatter. Well, the mission is the same in both. When we gather, we proclaim Christ. But when we scatter, we are also to proclaim Christ. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to go out after the service, go to the first street corner, and start preaching a message. Although, if you want to do that, go for it. I would love for that to happen. But that's not what I'm necessarily saying. But what I am saying is that we would talk about Christ as we go about everyday life. That as you go... You would look for opportunities to speak about Christ. Because as I've said before, you will always talk about the things you love. And if we love Christ, it only makes sense that we would talk about him. Listen, if if you have kids, I have no doubt that you speak about your kids to other people. Why? Because you love your kids. If there's a restaurant you like, you talk about it. If there's an exercise program you like, you talk about it. If there's a sports team you like, you talk about it. Uh, My parents are here visiting this weekend from Iowa. And for better or worse, the reason why I like Iowa State sports is because of my parents. And so when they picked us up, or when I picked them up at the airport, one of the first things we talked about on the way home is Iowa State basketball. Now, I know that all of you were probably talking about Iowa State basketball this weekend too. I understand that. And by all of you, I mean none of you, right? But for us, it wasn't weird because we like Iowa State. It's natural that we would talk about it. The fact of the matter is that you talk about things you like. You talk about things you love, and how much more should that be true with Christ? We're not talking about a sports team or kids or our favorite food. I mean, all those things are great, but none of those things will rescue people from their sin. But when we proclaim Christ, there's an opportunity that a person can be rescued. So how much more, then, should we talk about Christ? Now, I know that sometimes this makes us uncomfortable. I know that there are some people who are uncomfortable with this idea that we would tell others about Jesus, One of my friends in college was a gifted and eager evangelist. He really loved Jesus, and he loved people, and so he constantly found himself in conversations with people about Christ. On multiple occasions, I was with him when he was sharing Christ. He had this way of disarming people, that they could tell that he really cared about them as he was sharing about Christ. And so never once in all the times I was with him did I see anyone offended that he was talking with them about Christ. Now, that's not to say it's never happened. I'm sure there's been times where someone's been offended. That's the nature of the gospel. The, The message itself can be offensive. But never once did I see anyone get offended because my friend was sharing Christ. In fact, the only person I know of that was offended by his sharing was his sister who was a Christian. He wasn't actually sharing Christ with her. She was already a Christian. She was just offended that he was going out and telling people about Jesus. She was convinced that he should have just done this with actions, that he shouldn't have actually said anything with his words. That always struck me as a little bit odd, right? The people who don't know Christ seem to appreciate my friend talking about Christ. But his sister who knew Christ was offended. I mean, this seems strange. Now, for the record, I think we should expect some opposition when we proclaim Christ. After all, if the world hated Jesus, they'll hate us too when we proclaim the message. But I would hope that that opposition wouldn't come from other Christians. And I would hope that that opposition wouldn't come from our own thinking. I think that's the danger. That's the reality we live in, is that oftentimes we talk ourselves out of proclaiming Christ. Because we think, well, I don't know if that's the best thing. So let me just give you some motivation here. Why should we proclaim Christ? Now, I'm not going to tell you anything new. But I think I just want to remind you, why is it worthwhile for us to talk about Jesus with people? All right, so let me just give you two reasons, okay? One is simply this. We proclaim Christ, or we talk about Christ, because we believe this is the only message by which people can be saved. So let me read from Romans 10 here. All right, Romans 10, verses 9 through 15. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. If not, you can listen along. Romans 10, starting in verse 9. I think this is a critical passage for what we're talking about. If we're saying that the mission of the church is to proclaim Christ, this verse is really important. Romans 10, starting in verse 9. Verse 9 says this, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But here it is, verse 14. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to preach without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord who has believed what he's heard from us. And here's a key verse, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So Romans 10 is clear. The way that people are saved is by confessing that Jesus is Lord. Believing that Christ died on the cross for their sins. But the question Romans 10 asks is how will people hear this message unless someone shares it? And the obvious answer to that question is they won't that they will not hear unless we speak about Christ. Now, I know I'm not breaking new news here. I know I'm not breaking new ground. I know you've heard this before. But I think we need to remind ourselves that people have rebelled against God and their rebellion has separated them from God. And the only hope they have is that Christ came and lived a perfect life and died on the cross for their sins. And when I say only hope, when I say that's their only hope, what I mean is that is their only hope. I don't mean that there's other options that could be just as good. I don't mean that Jesus is one of several options that could work. When I say that Jesus is the only hope, I mean he is the only hope. This is the only hope people have is that they would hear about Jesus and they would be rescued from their sin. So let's be clear. If we are going to live out the mission of the church, we must proclaim Christ. Jesus reminds us in John 14, the passage I quoted earlier, there is no other way no one comes to the Father except through Him. And if that's the case, then it seems to me that we should speak about Jesus. This should be an intricate part of our mission as the church. When we gather together on Sundays, if we don't talk about Christ, and instead we just talk about how to be better parents or how to have a better marriage or how to manage our finances better, I mean, at some level you could say, well, maybe that's nice to learn those things. But at the end of the day, if someone has a healthy bank account, for example, and yet they don't know Christ and they go to hell, what good will that do? We must proclaim Christ. So when we are together, we must talk about Christ crucified. Well, the same is true when you go and you scatter. If your neighbors think you are a nice person or if the people at your kid's school think you're kind, that's great, but your niceness and your kindness will not rescue someone from sin. What will rescue them is the message of Jesus Christ. So let's be clear. This is an intricate part of the mission of the church. We must proclaim the gospel. It's the only message that can save. Now, there's another reason, I think, why we must proclaim Christ. And that's this, that the proclamation of Christ serves as the fuel that motivates us to live differently. So let me throw out a hypothetical situation to you. Let's say that you're dropping your son off at college. Okay, and your goal for your son, when you're dropping him off, you're thinking, okay, what is my goal for him over the next four years? Your goal is that he would honor Christ and live in a way that pleases God. By the way, I would hope that as parents, we think in those terms. That we don't just think, well, I hope they flourish academically and socially and don't pay attention at all to their spiritual life. But let's say that this is your goal, that they would live in a way that honors Christ. And so you have 10 minutes as you're dropping them off. And you can give one last speech to try to encourage them to live in a way that honors Christ. Now, for the record, if you're putting all of your hope in those 10 minutes, you're probably in trouble, right? You need to have those conversations long before. But let's just say you have that one last 10 minutes so you can plead with them to live differently. What would you say? What would you say? How would you motivate them? Would you remind them of the commands of God? Would you warn them of the dangers of sin? Would you threaten to cut off the money if they don't live the right way? I mean, maybe you would do those things, but I don't think that's the best strategy. If you wanted to motivate someone to live differently, I think the best thing you could do, if you have limited time, is to remind them what Jesus has done. Why? Because when we understand what Jesus has done, this is what motivates right living. In fact, the New Testament does this frequently. In the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters are primarily theology and a reminder of what God has done. The last three chapters then tell us how to live. Now, that's a bit of an oversimplification, but that's basically how Ephesians is set up. First three chapters, this is who Jesus is. This is what he's done. Now, in light of that, last three chapters live differently. The book of Romans does the same thing. In Romans 12, 1, it says, therefore. And then that seems to be drawing our attention back to chapters 1 through 11. Now, I know some of you are studying Romans right now in the women's study. You know that the first 11 chapters are heavy on theology. They are heavy on what Jesus has done. And so Romans 12, 1 says, therefore. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's the same pattern as Ephesians. This is what Jesus has done. This is who God is. Therefore, live differently. And so understanding the gospel is what fuels us to live differently. So let me give you an analogy of why I think this is the case. So let's say that you're at work, okay? And you have three managers who are kind of overseeing you. And there's a huge project coming up. This is a gigantic project, right? This is one that's either going to make or break you. Either you are going to be promoted after this project, or you're probably on your way out the door. And so all three of these managers are giving you different advice. And so you're trying to decide whose advice should you take. Well, the first manager, if you were to describe this manager in a word, it would be, this might be a hyphenated word, arch nemesis. I don't know if that's one word or two, but two words, I don't know. This would be your arch nemesis, right? At every step of your career, they've always done everything they can to make sure that they are advancing themselves and they have proven that they do not care about you. They've proven that they do not care about you. They've tried to sabotage you. In fact, it would seem that this manager is only concerned about using you as a pawn to advance their own career. All right, so that's one manager you're getting advice from. The second manager, you don't really know at all. You don't have a history with, you don't know anything. Maybe... Maybe she's wise, maybe she's not, you just don't have that history. The third manager, though, you have a long history with. And this manager, on every occasion, has always looked out for you. In fact, there's been times where this manager has sacrificed their own career so that you are sacrificed, maybe getting recognition in their own career so that you could get the recognition. They have always looked out for you. They've always done the wise thing. In fact, they have a track record of showing that they have wisdom in these types of decisions. So my question is, all other things equal, who would you listen to? Well, it's a no-brainer, right? You would listen to the third manager, the one that has a track record of caring for you, the one that has a track record of showing that they are wise. Of course you would do that, right? By the same token, I think if you understand Jesus' love for you, if you understand the type of character he is and what he's done, I would think that not only would you want to follow his commands, but that you would start to see the wisdom, or you would trust that his commands are wise. Because here's the thing. Jesus has a pretty good track record, too. He has a pretty good track record, too. He has a history of caring about you. He has a history of always doing the right thing. And so if you can remind yourself of what he's done, then you will be motivated to live differently. You will think to yourself... You know, I I don't know if I see why this command makes sense, but I'm going to do it anyway because I know Jesus is wise, right? And so we preach the gospel not just because lost people need to hear, but also because this is the fuel that motivates us to live differently. And so make no mistake about it. If we're going to say that our, what is our mission in the church? We must start here. We must speak about Jesus. We must speak about the fact that he died for our sins and that he rose three days later. To not do so, either while we're gathered here or while we're scattered, is to not complete our mission. Now, I do fear that in many churches, this is an aspect of our mission that we've completely neglected, especially when it comes to the scattering, that we go out and we live our lives without giving much attention at all to the proclamation of Christ. But this is what we are destined to do. We are to proclaim Christ. Now, I would say the second aspect of our mission is not only that we are to proclaim Christ or proclaim the gospel, but we are to preserve the gospel. Now, if uh, when you walked in here today, I asked you, what do you think the mission of the church is? I'm guessing not many people would say, we'll preserve the gospel. But if you look at the totality of the New Testament, it's obvious that this was an expectation of both the church and its leaders. The amount of times that the uh, church is warned in the New Testament about false teaching and protecting themselves against false teaching is actually a lot. In fact, let me just give you a couple of examples here. Turn to 2 Timothy 1. So 2 Timothy, back towards the end of the New Testament. After 1 and 2 Thessalonians. 1 Timothy, then 2 Timothy. Chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Right, verse 13 says this. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now he's speaking to Timothy, our leader of the church, but he's saying this is what the church should do. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Excuse me. Now the context of 2 Timothy, verse 8, is clear that that good deposit is the gospel. In other words, the church has been given stewardship, right? God has given us the task of looking after the gospel. We are to guard this. We are to protect it. We are to make sure that no one distorts it. This is a precious gift that we have been given, and our job is to defend it. Our job is to make sure that it's not distorted, that it's not confused, that it's not falsely taught. This is our job. In fact, uh, this is the language that 1 Timothy 3 uses. It says that the church is to be a pillar and buttress of truth. A buttress there is meant to be something defensive. It could, The word translated could actually be a bulwark, which is a defensive wall, or it could just be translated protector. So in that First Timothy 3 passage, you might say that the church is to be a pillar, meaning that it holds up the truth, and a protector of truth. Now, it's obvious that this is an expectation of the church because of something that's said about its leaders. So just go one more book to the book of Titus, chapter 1. All right? Titus 1 is addressing elders and is saying, what kind of qualifications do you need for elders? Listen to verse 9 of Titus 1. It says this, He must hold firm to the trustworthy trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Right, so that's actually the first two aspects of the gospel, right? Pro, or the mission. Proclaim the gospel, so they may be able to give sound doctrine, and also rebuke those who contradict it. Preserve the gospel. John Calvin says this about the Titus passage. He says, a pastor or an elder needs two voices, one for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away the wolves and the thieves. 2 Timothy 4 says that there will come a time when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but instead they will gather around them people who say what their itching ears want to hear. Well, I think we all know that time is here. Time has been throughout all the ages, actually, where there's always been people who will gather around them what their itching ears want to hear. But our job as a church is to protect the truth. When the world calls into question the exclusivity of Christ, we must, with a loud voice, insist, no, Christ is the only way. When the world calls into question the validity of the words in this book, we must stand and say, no, here we are, we can do no other. To paraphrase Martin Luther. When the world calls into question our ethics or the biblical ethics, whatever it may be, particularly maybe in our culture now, it's sexuality. When the world calls into question those things, then we must say, no, we must hold to truth that has been given to us by God. We must protect the good news that's contained in this book. We must protect it. And let me give you one specific application of this. I think that we must preserve the gospel with our children. Listen, I've said this before and I'll say it again. We have a huge amount of children at this church. God has gifted us with a lot of kids. We have a ton of kids. And our job is to preserve the gospel with them. We must make sure that they get an undiluted or uh, unflawed version of the gospel. Dea Carson points out there's a progression in history that commonly takes place. The first generation believes the gospel and all its implications. The second generation assumes the gospel, and then the third generation loses the gospel altogether. Let us not assume the gospel with our children. Make no mistake, the gospel of the world, and when I say the gospel of the world, I just mean what the world is trying to say will satisfy. What your kids are hearing at school, what they are hearing out in the world, is much different than the true gospel. And we must make sure that there is no ambiguity we must make sure that there is no confusion about what will really satisfy and what will really rescue, and it's Jesus. Listen, do not assume. And by the way, even if you don't have kids, I would assume at some level you're involved with kids here. Perhaps you teach a Sunday school class. Perhaps you're friends with the family that has kids. And so even if you don't have kids, I think this applies to you. Don't assume that the kids here at New Hope don't assume that they understand the gospel. Don't assume that because they go to church or because you're a Christian or because they've heard the gospel before or even because you've had this conversation with them before, don't assume that they know what the gospel actually is. Don't assume that they actually believe the gospel. I remember about a year ago, Brian Lee gave his testimony. And one of the things he said, Brian grew up in the church, he said that during his time in the church, no one ever asked him, what is the gospel? No one ever asked him, what do you believe? Now, thankfully, uh, By God's grace, Brian came to know Christ anyway. But they assumed the gospel. I think that story is a warning for us. We must not assume that our kids know what it means to follow Christ. We must not assume that they know what the the gospel actually teaches. Just because they go to Sunday school on Sunday or just because you've talked to them about it before doesn't mean they actually know what it means. Just because they can recite facts about Jesus doesn't mean they actually know Jesus. And so let's not assume the gospel with our kids. In fact, let's do a better job of preserving the gospel. Let's make sure that what we're passing on is the true gospel. Let's make sure that what our kids leave here, when they graduate and they go off to college, they have an accurate understanding of what the gospel actually teaches. Now, whether they choose to accept or not, that's up to God. That's up to God and that's up to them deciding and responding to the gospel. We can't control whether they actually believe it. But what we can do is preserve it. What we can do is make sure that they have an understanding, or at least that they've been clearly taught what the gospel teaches. This is our job. This is our job, not just with our kids, but with all people, that we are to preserve the gospel. And so let me ask you this, specifically as it relates to you, kid, to your kids, Are you a pillar and buttress of truth in your home? Are you protecting and holding up the gospel? Are you holding it up high and protecting it and guarding it from all the false influences, all the worldly influences that are saying, no, this will satisfy, or this is the way you can be right with God, or this is the way that you can have joy in this world? Are you protecting it? Are you holding up the gospel? You are pillar and buttress of truth. We must preserve the gospel. This is the role. This is the mission of the church. All right, so we proclaim the gospel, we preserve the gospel, and then we display the gospel. Mark Dever says that if you were to point to one verse or or one uh, passage that sums up the purpose of the church, he would say it's Ephesians 3. So you can turn there, one one last verse here, Ephesians 3, verses 10 and 11. Ephesians 3, verse 10, says this. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, again, verse 10 through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities. The church is meant to display the wisdom of God. Peter O'Brien clarifies what that means. He says this in this particular context, the wisdom that's being referred to here has particular reference to God's richly diverse ways of working which led to a multiracial, multicultural community being united as fellow members in the body of Christ. In other words, when the diverse church is living together in unity, this makes a display of God's wisdom not only to the people of the world, but also to the spiritual powers. When we live together in unity, when we are united by a common love for Christ, this displays something to the world. Now, no doubt... The way we treat non-believers ought to display something about the gospel also. We ought to be kind and gracious to non-believers. We ought to be generous and help those who are in need. We should be salt and light in the communities we live in. But the way that we display the gospel with one another will speak a message to the world around us. Again, I'm not saying that at the expense of actually proclaiming Christ. Of course, we already spent time talking about actually proclaiming Christ. But we can say something also, or we can demonstrate something also by the way we love one another. When people from different backgrounds, whether it be cultural backgrounds or racial or ethnic backgrounds or socioeconomic backgrounds, when we can come together and we can be united by a common love for Christ, this says something to the world around us. When we can unite and we can set aside our differences because we have a common love for Christ, this tells the world how powerful the gospel is. Now, uh, maybe in the past you've been under the impression that the way we can display the gospel is if we have a really nice building or if we have really entertaining preaching, or if we have really great worship music, or if we have really fun programs for children. But the truth is, the world already has all that. The world already has really nice buildings. And the world already has entertaining people. And the world already has great music. And the world already has lots of programs for children. What people in the world need is genuine community, and ultimately a Savior. And Jesus would actually argue that that genuine community can point people to the Savior. In fact, John 13, he says this, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So we are able to make a display of the gospel if we care for one another. When someone in the church is sick and we care for them, this displays the gospel. When someone in the church is hurting and we weep with them, this displays the gospel. When someone in the church is rejoicing and we're there celebrating with them, this displays the gospel. When we disagree on something, And yet we're still able to be unified and we're still able to love each other even though we have differences of opinion. This too displays the gospel. Now, of course, the opposite is true. The opposite would be true. If we fail to care for one another, this doesn't display the gospel. If we fail to love one another during times of need or to help those who are in need, this doesn't display the gospel. When we argue and we are bitter and there's divisions, this does not display the gospel. But when we are united together... This is a beautiful picture of the gospel. If you have a non-believing friend or relative, and they were to come to you and say, hey, uh, what difference does the love of Christ make? If they were to ask that question, which you know, I'm not expecting they will, but if they do, I would hope that you could say, you want to know what difference it makes? Why don't you come with me to church on Sunday? And you watch the way we interact. Or why don't you come to care group this week and, and my friends from church, as we, as we spend time together, I think you'll see the difference it makes. Or why don't you come over for dinner on Friday We have a few friends from church and I think you'll see the difference because the way we care for each other is different. Now, could you say that? Would you say that? I hope the answer is yes and I hope if it's not yes, I hope that we're moving in that direction. The only way this will happen though is if we are united by a common love for Christ. Now understand this, people... In the world, they have community of some sort. I'm not not saying they have no community. They do. They have social clubs that they're part of. They have friends in the neighborhood. They have fellow parents from the same school. But the community that we have is different. We have a community, if we're united by common love for Christ, that can overcome disagreements and hurt feelings. We have a community that crosses all barriers, whether they be cultural or racial or socioeconomic. We have a community that lasts even through the hardest of times. This type of community can only come through a common love for Christ. When we gather together and we're united together, caring for one another, this displays the wisdom of God, not only to the world, but also to the spiritual powers. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. And I think it's fitting, as we think about the mission of the church, that we remember that this is what drives us together. It's Christ. Christ is the focal point. Why is it that we proclaim the gospel? Well, because the good news of Christ is worth proclaiming. Why is it that we preserve the gospel? Well, because the truth of Christ is worth defending. Why is it that we display the gospel? it's because the beauty of Christ is worth displaying. Understand this. If you take Christ out of the equation, then our mission is hollow. And in fact, we don't really have a mission. We're nothing more than a religious club. But if Christ is at the center if a common love for Christ brings us together, if a common love for Christ motivates us, if the love of Christ is what fuels us, then the gates of hell will not be able to stop our mission. In fact, I know that's true because the Bible tells us. So let's make sure that we are united together by a common love for Christ. Let's proclaim the gospel. Let's preserve the gospel. Let's display the gospel all for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Uh, God, we thank you that we get to be a part of your mission. Uh, I I know that we're looking for mission. I know it, because people are looking for sports teams that they can come around and feel like they're a part of a team together or uh, they're participating in video games thinking that they can accomplish this. But we know that there's a much greater mission that we can be a part of, and that is the mission of your kingdom. And so, Father, we are asking that we would be excited to be a part of this mission, and we'd be excited because we know what your son Jesus has done. Father, we love you and we're so grateful that we get to be a part of this task. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be a part of your team so that we can be a part of your mission. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.